Brother Jamie. Brother Samuel. I have picked up our specialty items. If you would meet me in the... Did you get the pizza? Fuck, I thought that was you. Oh, damn it. I'll get on to an unbranded website where I can order food. <laughs> we will meet in the, the high study room above the rotating pit of ignorance. Is that the one next to the, uh, the pit of malice and happiness? I really hope so. I see you there. Welcome to the Secret Society of Game Masters. My name is Sam. My name's Jamie. We have been trapped after joining a cult of Game Masters uh, in a secret location. Maybe somewhere on the European continent? We are not sure. We are definitely underground. We are definitely underground, but that is all we know. However, we have lots and lots of books and tomes and knowledge at our fingertips to help you run your role-playing games. So this week, we'll start with the news. Jamie, are you aware that Wizards of the Coasts are working with Funko Pops? They're doing what now? I know. The small vinyl figurines, which seem to have taken on every other pop franchise, have now started working with Dungeons & Dragons and have three little vinyl figures that are available to buy in February of next year. So, Sam, if I, if I was a uh, a complete noob to the, the Funko craze, these little figurines I collect, basically, right? Yeah, so they're, they're about five or six inches tall, and they're very kind of cartoon-esque with uh, comedy large head. I've got a, a Funko Pop Cthulhu somewhere that our, mm. our mutual friend Jordan gave us, and Dungeons & Dragons have given three to be licensed away. There is a Mind Flayer, there is the devil god Asmodeus, and there is Min- Asmodeus, and there is Minsk and Boo, who I am not particularly familiar with, but I have seen them a lot cropping up. Yeah, if you've played any of the Baldur's Gate games, you'll know who they are, and they're a very, um, or even in some of the comics around the indie, actually, they're very sort of uh, popular heroes from that. So oh, I see. I, I've, yeah. I've played the, Bald- the first Baldur's Gate, and they are very cool. Well, I I think these little the the Funko Pops look really great. I really like the Mind Flayer one and Minsk and Boo. It's hard not to say. Is that a hamster? Yes, it it's looks... a, I think it's a miniaturized giant space hamster or something like that. I'm probably butchering the delivery, but yeah, it's it's awesome. I think, um, in fact, if you watched any of the Dragon D and D lives that they did last year, I'm pretty sure it was. Oh, I can't remember his name. Jim something who who does the comic who who played. Um, uh, Minsk and then Boo was um, was Matt Mercer. So, oh, fantastic! Oh, that's amazing. Okay, well, that's something I need to go back and check out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's a, it's a whole thing. It's awesome. Wizards of the Coast have also announced something very exciting that a lot of people have been waiting for. It's the Eberron campaign setting. I think even if you're not necessarily a huge fan of Eberron, which I'm sure a lot of people are who played previous editions, just seeing another setting coming out. Will, will just be really good news because if if you've got whether it's Dark Sun or or any or Plain Jammer or any of those other sort of settings, it's I guess a, a step in the right direction that they're going to start releasing those. Hopefully, I think so. When they were talking about it on their Dungeons and Dragons podcast, uh, the Main Wizards of Coast one, which I recommend you check out. There's lots of really good stuff, including uh, lore you should know. It's really great, and they were very excited to kind of say, "Look, there are other stuff. There is other stuff to do in D anD D that's not kind of just swords and buckler. They're like interesting turn of the century technology with magic." Uh, so the official statement is: This book provides everything players and dungeon masters need to play Dungeons and Dragons in Eberron, a war-torn world filled with magic-fueled technology airships and lightning trains where noir-inspired mystery meets swashbuckling adventurer will eberron enter a prosperous new age or will the shadow war descend once again uh, so there's lots of really cool stuff i know a lot of d and d games that are running at the moment are using things from it that you get the warforged is a new race yeah. there are lots of other sub races that are coming in including dragon marks i have no idea what they are but they sound really cool but yeah i'm really excited i've already pre-ordered it uh and it is yeah (laughs) well i've I've already pre-ordered it via amazon other book retailers are available 
<laughs> I have tried to, and I do encourage everyone to do this. See if your local bookshop will stock or order these, because then you might be able to get them locally, and it shows them that it's available, and it means you're not giving money straight to Amazon. And plus, you, you can sometimes get them a week or so earlier. Um, so it probably depends on your bookstore, but some some game stores I've bought from in the past have managed to get the release about a week earlier. So you know you get to look at it earlier, which is always nice. Yeah, yeah. So we we definitely recommend doing that. And, you know, supporting your local economy is important. Uh, let's see. Now, also, came out recently, Jeremy Crawford released some of the Unearthed Arcana. So this is some new and cool stuff for the Sorcerer and Warlock classes. There is a new cantrip. Yeah, there's very much a otherworldly um, aberration sort of bent on both the, the new cantrip and the new subclasses. So they're... Um, Almost very Lovecraftian. If if you you know if you're like the sort of mind flayer, Abeleth and that sort of uh, creatures, and this is almost maybe a bit more your your sort of way. Which I know Sam would probably. I look at these and I think hmm, yeah. I could see you playing one of these. Oh, definitely. the The new cantrip is called Mind Sliver, and if you're interested in those and kind of psionic energy, and I recommend reading, uh, going onto Jeremy Crawford's Twitter. Uh, he always releases really cool stuff about Dungeons and Dragons that's coming out and always feature interesting discussions. Um, oh, I've just remembered the Eberron book also includes the class, the Artificer. It's finally kind of been codified, uh, within yeah. a, within a print book. I know we played around with it when well, it I was first... just going to say you played around with it because you played a character that was an Artificer, right? I did when it, f- kind of when it first came out as Unearthed Arcana. Jamie, I, I find it hard to describe. What is Unearthed Arcana for those who are not quite as initiated as we? So the Unearthed Arcana is basically like playtest material. It's material that it's from released by Wizards of the Coast. It's not official yet. It's kind of in that pre, we want people to test it. Let us know if there's any flaws or any like, I don't know, combos that are completely broken. So they, they basically release it, ask their DMs and D&D players to give it a go if, if they can in their home games and let them know some feedback. So it's really useful to sort of see what Wizards of the Coast have in the pipeline of what's to come up. So with this one, for instance, given it looks like there's a few psionic sort of abilities, it's interesting that they're looking at that again after they did an earlier run after Arcana, which was around the Mystic class, which I know if you're a player of previous editions, you'll be familiar with, and probably quite a lot of people like that sort of thing. For instance, with the Mythic class, that one, sorry, Mystic class, that one was... um, kind of not that well received because there was a lot of broken things with it so it's it's much better that they have this sort of avenue to test it and make their mind up to whether they want to then introduce it into the sort of canon of what is official sort of game material which obviously in your experience sam we've you've tested out the artificer there was a few different versions or subclasses of it and i don't think the one you played got released i think they they kept the other two if, if memory serves good the one i played <laughs> was bad and not fun it it was very it was a very weird class that couldn't quite decide what it wanted to be it half wanted me to be an alchemist and it half wanted me to be a magic a magic objects yeah maker and tinkerer but i was never very good at both so it was it was very confusing i when i was listening to critical role and I've I've been listening podcast wise because my attention span is very difficult and I can't sit down and watch the streams. But listening on podcast, I'm finally up to where we have Terry Darrington, uh, <laughs> the artificer in campaign one. Spoilers, obviously. I won't say more than that. But the way he plays it seems different to how I was interacting with it. So we may have played a different version. But I found the class very difficult to do. And when my artificer died, uh, no major. No major loss at that point in the campaign, and I managed to play a high-level druid, which was very difficult to grab a hold of. I can't remember what level we started. I started that druid at, but probably like fourteen or fifteen, something like that. Yeah, it was difficult to wield, like going fourteen levels up, but I enjoyed it a lot more. But I'm glad that they've play tested the artificer, and I'm intrigued to see how it plays going forward. And I can definitely see a couple of players that I work with seeing how they want to run it. Mm, absolutely. 
so now we will move on to our monster of the week. And this week we have chosen the shadow. 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 I, I've picked the shadow because I find it a very interesting low-level undead creature. Yeah, it's kind of a bit more, there's a lot more to it than, say, your standard zombie or skeleton. It's got some quite cool mechanics to sort of throw at players. And I like to kind of really throw, as you say, those mechanics. And also, from a storytelling perspective, it's really interesting to say, you see shadows out there. And people go, all right. And you're like, no, you're looking right at it. Like, this is a monster. <laughs> this is a terrible yep. monster. Uh, and I'm really... Yep. I'm really glad that you were able to send me a link to a website called The Monsters Know What They're Doing. Would you be able to run that through? Because I, I find it really interesting, but I haven't used it as much as you have yet. Okay, yeah, yeah, no worries. So themonstersknow.com uh, is a really, really useful resource I've found, for, especially for running. It's the main thrust of the website is trying to give you a little dive into the different types of creatures and their you know, their different statistics, their vulnerabilities, resistances, and so on, and kind of give you, a, the DM, a, an idea of how to run them that would make sense for them as a, as a creature. So, you know, for, as, a, as a very high-level example, if you were looking at dragons and you were a little bit overwhelmed with how to run dragons, then this could be a really good resource for, okay, this is what a white dragon's more like, this is what a, a black dragon's more like. It, it can then elevate your gameplay, I think, a little bit more so that you, your players get that sort of re, the sort of reality of what, how those uh, creatures would act. So, for instance, if, you, if your dragon never flew off the ground, you'd be kind of denying your players a little bit of an experience of how you would fight against the dragon because, obviously, it's difficult because they're always in the sky and raining breath weapons or whatever upon you. So. Yeah, definitely. I think I think one of the benefits of tabletop role playing games is that we get to interact with things that are not limited by. In video games, you you sometimes play a certain type of video game, and it will not have creatures that can do very much. Uh, I hate to dunk on Bethesda, but their <laughs> their dragons in Skyrim were rubbish and basically just flew around used their breath weapons a bit and then landed waiting for you to smack it around a bit. And it felt very disingenuous to how A, they said it was going to work and B, how dragons should work in that universe. But with tabletop role-playing games, you're not limited by that. You have the mechanics as guides and this website's really good for showing you like it could do this and then it does this. And so the section it has on shadows, I found really interesting Mm. because it basically says, look, use them as scavengers and, and hunters and they go off the the ones who wander away from the group and then they'll and it says quite interestingly what their flaws are as well because it'd be very interesting to say you know this monster does this and then it does that to kind of optimize its habits and its actions but it actually says when a shadow kind of comes out of its hiding and it can hide as a use Hyde's bonus action to kind of stay stealth and away from the players. But as soon as it's actually found a target, it will latch on, much to its detriment, until it saps the life from that character. So mm. if something has something that will make it flee, such as turn undead or any kind of radiant damage, then it will flee. But I, I find these really interesting. It gives you a bit more flavor. And then your players will know, oh, how do I interact with this? It will work this way. And it gives them more tactics instead of saying okay here's a monster it's pink this time and it will walk towards you in the same way and hit you it gives it a real real kind of flavor and romance absolutely so as an example of that it talks about how shadows will avoid light because you know obviously they're shadows they don't want to be out in sunlight so if you weren't really thinking too hard into your, your creature you might just as you say do the sort of this creature moves towards you it tries to hit you a load of times and you're essentially just letting the dice decide what happens. This one gives you a little bit more flavor by, well, you know, if, if there's a sure way to get rid of it, it's for your players to run out into the sunlight and it probably won't chase them because it doesn't want to be there. So stuff like that does have to add a little bit more, as you said, to the, to the sort of game world. Uh, going into the actual statistics of the shadow, so I'm a class of 12, not particularly high. It's hit points 3d8 plus 3, which on average give it 16. Uh, it's vulnerable to radiant, as we said before but it's got loads of damage resistances. Acid, cold, fire, lightning, thunder, bludgeoning, piercing, 
and slashing from non-magical attacks, and it's immune from necrotic and poison, obviously. It's got some conditions immunity because it is a undead creature as a shadow. It's immune to exhaustion, frightened, grappled, paralyzed, petrified, poisoned, prone, and restrained. But then I really like its its mechanics. It's amorphous. You know, it can it can squeeze through really narrow gaps. It's got improved stealth, and as you say, it's weak to sunlight. Yeah, so essentially it has disadvantage on attack rolls, ability checks, and saving throws whilst it's out in sunlight. So it doesn't want to be out there. No. I've I've tended to use it as a slightly malign creature that exists in the normal world. I mean, you don't have to kind of... Shadows exist in the normal Faerun. You don't have to go to special the Shadowfell or weird places they they exist out there so i've i've taunted a few people from campfires with shadows and things mm. i think if you've got um if you want to run any sort of medium style horror in a, in a even if it's just in a single session or something introducing these can, can kind of help with that sort of theme but other than that you don't really as you say it's not like they don't make sense to be out there in the world so i think they're quite good to to, to introduce that way i think it's also worth touching on them its main attack because it's got quite a cool um sort of mechanic there so as well as it being it's a, it's a melee attack it needs to be up in your face to to hit you and it does necrotic damage which isn't great but it's two, what 2d6 plus 2 so it's about 9 yeah. damage on average so it's a it's a decent whack but the, the main sort of thrust of how the shadow will sort of drain you of your life is that if it hits you target strength score is reduced by 1d4 now this obviously hits uh, someone like a barbarian or a fighter that's strength based quite hard because not only is it sucking away your life force with the narcotic damage, but it's also it's making you weaker. You can't hit it as hard. And if your strength score is reduced to zero, you will die. So it's quite a quite a nasty little little attack. Yeah, having mechanics that actively make it more difficult to strike back uh, feels very natural, and it feels like something that would definitely work in a realistic or consequence-led environment and i think it's a very interesting one and it's always interesting to see a player go well what do you mean you reduce my strength and you're like your arms wither to nothing your legs atrophy under you you feel ache in your bones as you barely lift your weapons yeah, exactly you, there's a lot you can sort of lean into in terms of how it makes the characters feel and, and what that does for them so i think in my own experience i because as I, I think I mentioned last time, we're running, I'm running Clears of Strahd. My players encountered about, I think, about six of these, but they were quite high level by the time they had done. So, you know, at, at first initial base, they weren't worried at all when it was like, oh, yeah, it's done so seven damage. They're like, fine, I can take that. But yeah. as soon as they found out that it was starting to reduce their strength scores, <laughs> oh, my gosh, you can see the players go, right, we've got to think so tactically here in terms of making sure that no one gets hurt too bad. It's actually really funny to watch and, and like really great as well because watching your players suddenly, it's almost like sharpening their, their interest in almost what's going on. I have to think more tactically now, which is quite cool. And then the final part of that strength strain, if a non-evil character humanoid dies from this attack, a new shadow arises from the corpse 1d4 hours later. Yeah, that's cool. So if you if you lose a player to it and they go, well, Okay, we'll come back in an hour after we've had a short rest, and we'll we'll drag the body out and hopefully resurrect it. You you might not get that chance. You might get no. more shadows already there. So yeah, I think that's a really cool monster that uh, you should try and incorporate as soon as you can to terrify your players. <laughs> and now we move on to notes to the GM. This is our section where we have a look for DMing issues, either on Reddit or Facebook or whatever, and discuss what we think the solution is. This one was brought to us by our group on Facebook, and it is, how do you start to build up confidence to give DMing a go? Jamie, Yeah, thoughts? I think it's a, it's a really interesting question, Sam. Oh, how would you start building up confidence? I, I know it's kind of a lame answer, but the first thing is you've just got to give it, you've just got to try. I think you've got to kind of jump, not almost jump off the deep end, but give, say, run a one shot. That's how I did it. We had a one week where we couldn't get all the players, and I was like, you know what, fine, I, I want to give this a try. Well, I, I looked online, found a couple of really good ideas for a one-shot, and I think it was 
probably you, Sam, and a couple of other of our friends, and I said, how about we, we give this a go this week so we can still play some D&D? I find that was really good for me to start building up the confidence. I think I ran about three or four of those sort of one-shots before building into a slightly larger campaign, and then from there into a full-blown campaign. So that's how I did it personally, and it's a, it is, a I guess, a journey because you come away exhilarated from your first attempt because it's it's you know it's really exciting and it is fun but you're also knackered and a little bit oh self-doubting of did this go well did the players notice when i didn't do this and obviously your players are usually oblivious to those sorts of things they'll usually give you <laughs> 10 out of 10 would d it would D with you again sort of thing definitely so, yeah yeah it's um it is really i found it really daunting but i found it very rewarding once you do start and just my, my number one thing would be try try one shot. There's there's no pressure on it. You know, it's one night. Try and try and aim to have fun and have fun with your players, and I think you'll, you'll they'll respond really well to that. How about how about you, Sam? How how did you start DMing? In fact, can I can I ask that question first? Many years ago, I was lost on a mountain with only a tome of DMing at my disposal. The people gathered round me asking, What stories could you tell, Master? And I spun them tales of misery and woe. <laughs> or we picked up the fourth edition starters pack and we all went through and I said, Oh, because I, I, I think I was the one who sat with the rule book the longest without making a character. And I went, I'll run it. You are right. I believe that obviously the first step in anything is just doing it, which is really shitty advice it doesn't it doesn't feel like it helps anyone but yeah, just... the hardest thing to do is to take that first step but... oh definitely because the problem the, the issue that i find a lot of people saying when they are interested in dming or gming and they don't know how is because they believe that dms and gms are all powerful rules lawyers who have an entirely encyclopedic knowledge of the mechanics items law and everything else and like table etiquette but actually really? <laughs> you really don't need to know any of that no, like you can get so far by, by going flying off the seat of your pants really yeah exactly that the whole point of dungeons and dragons or any tabletop role-playing game or even other role-playing systems like larp i know a lot of larp's game masters aren't the be-all and end-all authority on things. They just want people to come and have fun. All you have to do is prep the stuff for what the adventure is and maybe know some of the basic mechanics to help people out. But you even you don't even need to do that. I was DMing the 4th edition Red Box and I was going as, as it went. Like I read the rooms ahead of where they're going. It went, give me a moment whilst I quickly read and then ran the room. You you you're just there to have fun. If you really struggle with rules, allocate one of your players as the rules lawyer, or one of the more experienced players as the rules lawyer. Exactly. We'll go into this. We'll we'll go into this later as a part of another point. But like your players are there to engage with the system as well. So allocate to them to help. As the DM is also a player, like not obviously in terms of Certainly. player yeah. character, but you're also there to have fun. It's not just that you're some performing monkey that's making sure everyone else is having a good time. Whilst you want to make sure everyone else has a good time too, you need to have fun as well. And, and your players should also buy into that. And I think that that was an actual example I was going to give, is that in my campaign, I try and keep abreast of the rules, but you can't remember everything. So if you're really stuck and you don't only want to keep the flow going, make a ruling at the time and say, well, I'll check it between sessions and we can come back to it. Or you can have yeah, a player allocated, which is what I've done in my campaign, to say, right, I'm not sure for example, how underwater combat happens or what restrictions it imposes. Player A, can you just check this whilst we carry on? And yeah. that works really well. And as as you said earlier, not all the players are going to notice all the things that you are. What is interesting is because as uh, as you're running a game, everyone literally looks at you, so you have several pairs of eyes facing you. And if you get stage fright, that can be quite intimidating. And you're like, oh, I made a small mistake. Are they going to notice? No, they're just here to have a really good Friday night throwing dice and having a good time. Yeah. So relax, enjoy yourself, and just really double down on everything. What I noticed that helped me in games is 
a piece of advice where it's the same for writing advice is play or write what you know. Mm-hmm. So if you engage in like, because there's a lot of monsters in Dungeons and Dragons and my career is ecology. So I know how animals interact and what they do. I like to run the monsters with a, not realistic, but with a realism and a, and to a point where the players can understand how they're interacting and all the monsters. So if we go to a new area, I don't need to random roll what monsters are there. I'll go, what, what kind of things are there in real life? And then what kind of monsters would be there if they were to be here? And how are they going to interact? And that kind of thing. So I really roll those quite heavily in my campaigns. But I also do a lot of report writing and contract writing. So I've had contracts that the players have to sign in and, and that's part of the puzzle. If you work in the arts per se, you know, have them go to a theatre play. Have the have the group have to put on a play or something. Write what you know and love because it will yeah. come through and people will respond really well to it. No, that's, that's a really good point. I'd also add that, you know, if you're thinking of starting um, but you're not too sure what to do or you're a little bit nervous about it, feel free to watch something like an episode of Critical Role or Dice Camera Action with Chris Perkins, whose name we didn't forget earlier. Um, we didn't forget Chris Perkins. No, no Chris, we love you. We're so sorry. <laughs> um, watch and see how they do it. Just You don't even have to necessarily pay attention to the plot or whatever, but just pick up on what they're doing. So I found one thing I was struggling with when I first started DMing was speaking too fast and being a little bit nervy. And I found, I watched it one episode with Chris Perkins and he speaks really slowly and calmly measured when he wants to make a point. And mm. sometimes you're worried, well, my players won't pay attention for that long. They will. And if you, I think if you can slow your head down and try and slow your speech down, that, that, that can help quite a lot for those sorts of problems. Yeah. And, and it is a performance. So if you want to do a silly voice, double down, do a silly voice. Now, I, I started with a completely new group of players. They've never done tabletop role playing games before, and they're certainly not used to people role playing before. And I went for loads of really, and I'm in Norfolk at the moment, underneath the, the underground crypt. I was from Norfolk before we joined the cult. Um, <laughs> But I'm I'm from Manchester, you know, we're from Cheshire. We know northern accents, so I'm rolling loads of northern accents at them and then I'm rolling stupid accents for some of the other, like, gnomes and characters and just, like, really doubling down in that because I found it fun and funny and then they were, like, engaging similarly. And I went, oh, so they either like that or they're going forward with that and, yeah. On the flip side of that is, you know, if if you're not the sort of person who likes to do accents, which I think both of us are, but... Some people aren't comfortable with that. You don't have to. That's that's not a prerequisite of being either a D&D Definitely. player or a dungeon master. You can. There's absolutely nothing wrong with saying, you know, the orc leans over the table at you, he, he eyes you up and down, and in a gruff, low voice, he says, give me the money, for example. Yeah, that's perfect. And the the first rule in the Dungeon Master's Guide in many of the editions that I've read is, it's your table, you run it how it likes. If someone's going to question you on something, doesn't matter. It's your table. You're running it how you want. If you're not including a, a rule variant or you're not doing something a particular way, unless it's detracting from the overall mechanics, doesn't matter. It's your table. It's just, it's just pretend. And if any of your players turn around and say, "Well, you're not DMing like Matt Mercer," you send them to us because, as much as I love Critical Role and Matt Mercer, that's not necessarily how D and D has to be played, as he will say himself. That's one example. So. Don't yeah. be afraid to have a go. That's my main, my I, main point. I think we will do a full episode. Well, we'll do a section of episode on the Mercer effect. But he has, as you said, said multiple times, no one should be ro- running the games like I am because this is my game. And you have your games. And they are all better for everyone engaging with how they want to do it. If we had, if it was critical role games up and down the world people would be bored and they wouldn't be interested they're really great they're really fleshed out and fantastic but people come to D&D for interesting and new and unique there's lots of different versions of each game and how it's all run and that's why we look for those differences and and as we mentioned in our first episode Sam there are different types of players some people would hate you know a heavily role-playing political campaign 
Yeah. Some people just want to turn up and roll dice out and want to, you know, make the most overpowered character they've got. Nothing wrong with that. Like, they want to play barbarians called Joey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I always want to explain it, but it'll take too long. <laughs> take too long, but but we'll just leave this one in. Joey the Barbarian is my favourite character that I've ever made. He, he took a left turn in Brooklyn and ended up in Faerun, and that's basically all you need to know about Joey. What am I Barbarian. doing here? Huh? Hey, Joey! <laughs> so, yes. Uh, yeah. I hope, listener, that that answers your question in the longest way possible, but have fun. Be yourself. You'll do great. Yeah, and if there's any follow up questions, I'm sure we wouldn't mind discussing again in future because I know it's a daunting thing for. New, new players, new new DMs. So, you know, we're uh, we can only give the best advice we can, but hopefully that answers as much as we could. And now, Jamie, we are on our final feature section from the tones. In this, we introduce a topic and then we discuss it, much like the last one. But we tend to pick something specific, like a mechanic or something we're particularly interested in. This week, it is big groups and how to manage them. Jamie, take the floor. Okay, so, I mean, first off, what are we what are we defining as a big group? I think, you know, the, the, the standard way to measure a group is a party of four is normally about average. And then obviously, as you start getting a bit, a couple of players extra, it starts to get quite unwieldy. So I've ran for six players quite a number of times at Adventures League, which we've mentioned before, and that's my personal limit of, of, of a group that's I would define as a big group Sam I know you're an absolute madman and like to run D&D for as many people as you can so how many is it now is it seven you've got in your it's seven and I believe I'm tempting another player uh yeah so I could I could be having eight players and then me and any of the character the NPCs that I'm running which which for me is a, is a low level GM I uh, I am absolutely horrified at the thought of trying to entertain for eight people, but it starts getting a little bit difficult in terms of, well, pacing. So if you're in combat, then having eight people's turns as well as all the monsters can get a little bit rough. It can get a little bit uh, slow. So I'm sure that's one thing we'll, we'll mention. Even even role-playing, you know, you want to make sure gem, in general that everyone gets a, a chance to shine. And with eight people, that's eight people to share the spotlight between, so that's its own problem as well. I mean, physically fitting eight people around the table might be a problem for you. I'm not <laughs> sure, Sam. You've got quite a big table, but, you know, the more, the more people you add to it, the the more, I guess, re- general resources you need to share out. So I guess, Sam, I'd be interested in knowing your sort of thoughts. Like, do you prefer running for that many people? Does it bother you? Like, are you... Like, I would find it a little bit daunting, but so how have you kind of got past that side of things as well the first thing i would say is that there is no ideal group to have if you have one player one game master and you're having a great time or you have one game master or two game masters and 10 players and you're having a great time and everything's going well whatever happens at your table and you're having fun is the way you're meant to play the game so i used to play in a group with jamie and we had the best fun and it wasn't always lots of people. Sometimes it was just four players and the GM, and it was a blast. Now, I, in answer to the table question, obviously our rooms are non-Euclidean, and the shapes may change at any time. Space is irrelevant. Player sizes are irrelevant. And we can get chairs from the back, so we just get some. <laughs> no joke, The uh, for... A little bit of back law here. Uh, for our new house, I've been trying to find a big enough table to get all the players round and having a room big enough that it, they're not all cramped. Because uh, as a DM has... and you're buying a new house, the first consideration is where will the D&D table be, right? Exactly. And there's no crypt in this house. I have to pick a normal mundane room, which is just... Uh, it's just... I'm so sad. <laughs> So what happened was I didn't I I didn't pick to have eight seven players. <laughs> I picked to have four, and then their partners wanted to join in. Then most of them came in, and then two, a couple of additional people. And as I said in last episode, I have a bleeding heart. So if someone wants to say, oh, "Are you playing?" I'd love to, and I'm like, "Of course you can, please." I haven't got a chair, but I will sit on the floor or stand. <laughs> you sit down. So it kind of grew like that. 
what was interesting is because they are new players, I am able to implement things that more experienced veteran players would possibly shy away from. One of the things I started with was I've given everyone a notebook and a pencil and I've given them all that so that they can track everything. I don't need to, they don't need to explain what's happening between them or I need to explain what's happening each week or remind them of past stuff. They've got it all in their notebook as much or as little as they need. I've also got, and I will say that any of the tips that I'm giving are not mandatory. I have seen quite a few, I'm going to go into it later, but I have seen quite a few GMs and DMs say, this is how you should run it. This is the optimum way. This is not so. But I have found that having a central dice rolling thing, we've got a um, an octagon, a, a dice mat to roll everything on, and I get all the players to roll all their rolls into it, means they're not rolling it onto side surfaces that spill out onto the floor, and everyone's aware of what the rolls are, and everyone can learn how the mechanics works in front of them. Then that m- makes it quicker. I'm trying to get them to roll... When they're making attacks, I'm trying to get them to roll their d20 and their damage dice at the same time. Yeah. But that's but that's quite advanced. That does imply that they need to memorize all of that information up front. So we're, we're getting there, but it's difficult. And you need to manage your players. They're not all going to be at the same experience level, so you can't just demand that they do certain things. But that is as far as I've gone. A lot of them are, like we said last episode different player types so i don't need to give them all equal spotlight all of the time and they're quite happy to let players do other stuff or engage with the story in different ways which was different to other games i've been to where you know everyone wants to uh, there's nothing wrong with being a group of entirely of fighters but that can mean it's difficult for the gm to keep track and keep going i have been pouring through some of my older books, especially some of the fourth edition books. So it's, it's Foley time uh, again, people. Uh, <laughs> so I will. Which one have I got? So the fourth edition made two DM guides, and they are both fantastic. And quite a lot of the information is still relevant to fifth edition books, uh, fifth edition games, even because a lot of it is just advice. In troubleshooting, I would recommend DMG fourth edition, page thirty to thirty-two. Uh, it. It recommends, uh, on page 31, group size. How do you run groups smaller than four, larger than six? Design adventures bigger than that? And it even has, like, problem player questions, which is not something we'll get into today. But it it says, you know, uh, if it's too difficult to listen to six people who are all trying to tell you what they're doing at the same time in combat, keep the player on their toes. Make sure that you have a solid way of tracking initiative, and force players to delay if players are taking too long to decide on their actions. There is a DM who's on YouTube, and I like some of their advice, but I find one thing troubling. They recommended a mechanic where they counted down to five, because each turn in Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition is roughly equated to about six seconds, isn't it? Yeah. So he counts down on his fingers five seconds, and then they have to decide. Which I find is very, it puts the players on the spot quite a lot and it can make them feel vulnerable and nervous, especially when they're learning the game. And it is quite complicated. And he says, look, you don't know what you're doing. Your character doesn't know. So they're just bewildered at the moment and won't do anything. We'll get to you next round. And so that kind of puts them in a really shitty position in front of the rest of the players. It's a little harsh. Definitely. Have you ever encountered that as a player? Have you ever encountered those kind of mechanics put onto you, and have they worked? No, I don't think I'd... I'd so I'd, I would say I wouldn't particularly enjoy that because it's a little too harsh for mm. me. I'd say on the flip side of that, having played a couple of games where I've been a player in a large, slightly larger group, it can be a little bit frustrating when you've got, I don't know, a spellcaster, for instance, who's spending five minutes every turn trying to look at the spells and plumbing and ironing of what to do. So there's, I think there's a middle ground to be had there. And the way I deal with it personally is just try and make sure you tracking your initiative well is really important, as I think you mentioned, mm-hmm. Sam, because you can then let the net. Well, a the players should know when their when their go is anyway, so they should start planning before it's their turn if they can. And I will generally let players know. So if player A is, is 
their fighter, they're about to tell me roll their attacks and whatever. I'll turn to the player who's next in the initiative order and say, okay, you're you're coming up after this go. Can you make sure you know what you're doing? And and that sometimes they have to react to what's just happened right before them. So I think asking them to know in, within five seconds what to do is is a bit too much. I would probably give it like a minute or two. Um, and what I've said to my players is if you know if you go a little bit too long, I will a I'll give you a little nudge to say, come on, we need to keep things flowing, which I think is important in large shops. And if they really if they're really struggling for whatever reason, whether they're if they're nervous, they just don't know what to do, whatever. I have a standard default, so I would default to that player takes the dodge action this turn. Maybe their player is caught up in a, in a bit of indecision, and at least then they're not being punished too much for it because the dodge action gives them, you know, I think a, a disadvantage on the hits and advantage on dex saves. Maybe I can't remember the mechanics, but you're at least not punishing people too harshly. And I think if you give a little bit longer, that it, it's you're being a bit more flexible then at least. I find an interesting thing, especially with spellcasters, as you say, because there is a lot of thinking ahead of time. I know when we were playing our campaign together, and we were both spellcasters, we yeah, buddied... Like level 19 wizard and druid, oh. trying to figure out ninth level spells and lower. Yeah, <laughs> planning a turn ahead, and then that, that creature's dead, or a rift has opened up in space and time, and then we can't yeah. use call lightning. But we buddied up because basically we'd say instead of basically just waiting around the table and people not communicating, we buddied up and said, right, I'm going to do this. So it would be advantage if you try and do this. So we could discuss. And then when it came around to our turns, we had a plan together. Yeah, and I think that helps. And and this might not work for every table. Some you might think, oh, that's too metagame. My players shouldn't wouldn't be able to discuss at length during the combat. So they shouldn't be able to do it if they're players. If that's your game, fair enough. I think in that game it helped us give a bit more of a flow to it, and you know we were, we were both a little bit, you know, looking at high level spells and trying to figure out what was going on. So I think it just meant we weren't spending ten minutes every go. So I think for that game it worked well. I did make a list of symbolically how all my spells worked. I was like, is this an AOE? Like, does this take a minute to cast? Yeah, but uh, but the... you put a lot of homework into them, didn't definitely. You? But I, I think definitely buddying up, especially spellcasters, can be important. I currently have two druids in the party, and now I get them to sit next to each other because they use the same druid spell cards, which I find help them. They don't have to go away and look at all the, the spells in the book or are using an app. They've got the cards in front of them so they can go, oh, I use this, so it's a little bit quicker, and they're communicating between each other to go, ah, does this work? No. Okay, well, I'm going to use this. So buddying people up works I have seen I have seen terms of initiative where instead of rolling initiative you go round with player seating order which can make it feel a lot easier for some players to kind of figure out where they are in the order and what's happening. I can see that working with very large groups but it can always be disadvantaged for those who are at the end of the initiative or at the start of the initiative because a you know they have to make their mind up quickly or you know, they never get round to killing the thing. So it's it's a bit of a double-edged sword, but I can definitely see that mechanic working. That's a fair point, actually, yeah. If I was if I was last in the initiative and because it was such a large group, everything dies before it gets to me, I'd maybe be a little bit miffed. So if you were going to do that, for example, maybe you switch which way it works each time. So maybe you go from the left first time, next encounter from the right, so you can at least keep people engaged. Oh, certainly. Or you could make sure that characters that need a lot of information at the end of the round go at the end of the round healers notoriously if they're up first they have to go oh, i have to defend myself and not engage in the combat but if at the end of the round right you've taken damage healing word you and then i give a potion to so and so but as you say swap it round. i always group my monsters up to help them organize because as i say i've got seven players it's it's hard enough if it would be hard enough putting all the monsters in between them and it does mean that the monsters are underpowered because they don't get to do cool interactions, and sometimes I get them to act out out of turn. But knowing the players knowing that the monsters are coming up also helps them plan for their actions. I think that's a good point, actually. On the flip side of having a lot of players, and maybe we discuss this in a in a future podcast as well. Having running for lots of monsters can be similarly, you know, get the same sort of problems. So, in terms of that group initiative thing, I I do that actually. Let's say. For example, I've got eight zombies. I won't roll eight initiatives. It takes so long to try mm. and roll initiative each time and m- mark down where they be. 
I just split them into two groups of four. So at least they're not all going in one go and maybe all eating one person's <laughs> face off. Roll, roll two initiatives. Maybe one ends up going slightly earlier than the other one. Certainly. For instance, helps. Yeah. Now, going back to the source material, in the fourth edition DMG book two, I've opened the second one now, it recommends running more monsters, not tougher ones, for more players. So instead of everyone gathering around and kicking the shit out of one dragon, you bring minions in or lots of lower level things everyone gets a chance to interact with something and it's it spreads out the fun a little bit so i think a really rather than old story about this is i don't know if you've ever come across tucker's kobolds yes how yeah and that really feeds into this that lots of creatures can be a lot more difficult than one big one so it was all around just to segue slightly this high level group would go into a dungeon complex and they would be looking to get into the lower levels to get the really good loot but to get into the dungeon they always had to run past um a group of kobolds who had this little warren of like little tunnels and stuff so they can maneuver around they had traps everywhere and so on and the it was the joke was always around how the players would much rather be fighting the sort of 15th level demons and, and whatnot that would make way tougher because they knew they it was a bit easier for them to try and take those on than it was to try and fight the, the 40 or so kobolds, which was really cunning and, and would come up with ideas of how they would kill their minions and throw traps in their faces. Oh, so It was just for, gold. It's a, it's a great story if you want to read it and in a way that's presented a little bit better than what I've just I'll said. I'll try and find a link and put that in the show notes because it, it is really I, worth I it. I think that's well worth Yeah, it's a really fun read. But it, the, the, the core premise it talks about is, look, Imagine what you can do with, that's just kobolds, which are really low level. Imagine what you could do with, say, the same sort of group of orcs, a similar level, similar number rather, which, you know, again, working within their nature and tactically. It can be a much bigger problem or challenge the players to try and throw more minions like that so that, A, they've all got something to kill or whatever, but also so that you're, you're not just getting eight of your players surrounding one dragon and in one turn they're dead because the action economy is very much against the dragon that mm. just doesn't have enough goes to, to dish out its damage. Definitely. I will touch on one more thing that we, that we did alight on earlier. Is it In this section it says recruit lieutenants. And as we say, get more experienced people at the table to help facilitate things. Uh, it recommends all sorts of things for these lieutenants to do, kind of aggregate all the initiative, because as you know, when you say roll initiative and then everyone just shouts a number and then you go, no, hang on, we have to do this in order or else my brain won't do it. You know, 5 to 10, 10 to 15, all that kind of stuff. So get get experienced players to to help you organize the players. They can also do things like track initiative, have a look at monsters, work out tactics, and they can even be the rules lawyers if you just need someone to get stuff chucking in the background. So, you know, get your players to help you as much as you're trying to facilitate all these things. And sometimes as a as a newer player, it can be really helpful having someone like that sat next mm. to you. If, 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 For example, if you are, say, a new player and you've decided to play a wizard, you might not be entirely sure how your spells work. So sometimes a slightly more experienced player can help you with that. It can explain how that's going on between your next go, for instance, whilst the DM is still running what's happening with the rest of combat. Definitely. I think that pretty much encapsulates all my notes on big groups. Uh, the final thing I will say is that don't feel pressured into accepting a lot of people beyond what you feel you can handle. If you feel, okay, yeah. I'm a new DM, I'd kind of like to stick around three or four, just say so. No one's going to be like, oh, come on. You know, it's just one more person. They'll be like, you know what? Cool. And just say, look, I can only run this game with three or four people. But actually, I'm really tempted by, you know, running different system at the, uh, another day, like Monster of the Week or Mordheim or something, and just get these people in. Sometimes I include more one more person than I can actually manage, especially if we have guests around. Our friend Chris has come to visit, and he has basically run himself as an NPC. And I know I don't need to work too hard because I've given him a brief. We've worked out a character ahead of time and he will do his own thing. So I'm just like, right, yeah. self-contained, knows what he's doing, fine. And that's great. I know I've done that. You've guessed it in my Curse of Strahd as, a, as an NPC. And I've done something else with another couple of our friends with that. And that, that can be quite fun as well. I, and I would say my limit, my comfortable limit is five. 
I can run for six. I wouldn't want to run for seven. So my normal group is size is five. Mm. If, if other people were to approach and say, can we join in? I would probably be like, I'm really sorry, but maybe the next campaign. Um, but feel free to come down for one session and see if you like it sort of thing. Because I think in, as you, as you just alluded to Sam, having one offs is, is fine. I, it might melt my brain a little bit to have that <laughs> ongoing. Either. And that's fine. As you say, you just have to explain that to whoever. I have noticed that I've missed out something that is very important as part of the planning. We haven't really alighted on planning as part of uh, the series yet. Uh, we've only done two episodes, but one thing that is quite interesting is having more people slows down the game and it's hard to predict how much it does so as a rule of thumb, which I know is a terrible phrase and there are so many rules of thumbs and but down here we have multiple thumbs, but that, I think that's just due to the magic and radiation. Uh, if you, everything that you've planned for a party for, which should take them an hour, you know, a single encounter, a series of puzzles, a, a challenge that you've set it before them or a role-playing event. If it takes, it, sh- it to- should take a party for one hour, add 20 minutes per hour for every additional player. So if you've got five players, it then becomes an hour and 20. Six players, hour and yeah. 40. It's really good. I, I, I was really amazed how much slower bigger parties are. So I'm usually planning at a rate of, you know, okay, they're going to accomplish so much. And then usually the party end up doing about half as much as I predict. It, but it doesn't feel bad or stale. It just, they didn't progress quite as far. Uh, so sometimes I run extra long sessions at weekends and say, look, why don't you come around all weekend and we'll just blitz a load of stuff and it'll be good fun. And obviously just, just still work within your comfort zone. You might have a plan for a session to say, I want to get all this stuff done. And maybe you don't get all that everything done. Maybe you miss an encounter off the end because, as you say, it takes an extra amount of minutes to run that. Feel free to then still end the game a little bit early. Like You don't have to get cram everything in that you planned mm. to do just because you planned it. Feel free to, to, to call it a little bit early. Oh, calling, calling early cliffhangers is the best thing. Just going, oh, oh. Yeah, we should probably do a section on that because I love leaving it on a cliffhanger keeps people wanting to come back so much more so yeah absolutely the amount of streams i've watched and the games that i've played where something amazing has just happened and then you go and we'll, and we'll pick up on this next and then week. they go oh come on but just one more just one more go or just just one more combat and it's like no. nope when i, I want that's when i plan to end it or or whatever that, that's when i'm going to end it I find that's way stronger than a, than just going. You know what? It's three a.m. We're all really tired. Let's stop. A wizard is never late or early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Exactly. So. Well, that's all I had for big groups. Did you have anything more to add? No. Uh, all I would say is, obviously, if anything we've said has has sparked any thoughts in your mind, and you have any further questions, we'll include some way for you to get in contact with us, whether that's on Facebook, Google Mail, or whatever. So let us know. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for joining us at the Secret Society for Game Masters. I have been Sam. I have been Jay. Hopefully we will pass out communication soon. Join us next time. <laughs>